Broadcasting from occupied territories, War the Flea Media, it's the Reality Dysfunction Podcast. A space where a diverse group of brown folk from across the nation explore the political experiences and social future of our Chicano Latino community. Control the narrative, resist the dysfunction. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Ernesto. We're back today, kind of in a return to our roots. I have with me uh, Mr. Alex Janish, and he and I are going to uh, be talking about a booklet that we read a couple of years ago. It's called Wither Anarchism. It's by a gentleman named Kristen Williams, who also uh, wrote a book uh, that I really liked when I read it, and I, I still like it. It's called Our Enemies in Blue, and it's talking about the, the, pres- the, the presence of police or the historical presence of police in our society. I think the one thing I really like about that book is that the final chapter is, um, you know, really about how we get rid of the police. Like, he doesn't come back to this, like, liberal sort of line about, well, you know, the police are bad, but we need the police. I mean, he ends the book by saying, you know, we really don't need the police, <laughs> which makes it um makes it a cliffhanger, right? So again, yeah, we're glad to be back. Uh, it's been a while since Alex has been here, but I'm looking forward to this discussion. Alex, do you want to say anything to the people? No, I'm here. I'm back. Read the back of the page, back of the pamphlet real quick. Wither Anarchism by Christian Williams by To The Point Press. Can the contemporary anarchist scene investigate its shortcomings and mark a path towards the total transformation of society and the creation of a more just world? As the title suggests in this pamphlet, Williams asks, where is anarchism headed? We begin with a succinct overview of what anarchism means as a political philosophy. From there, two recent histories are used as a jumping off point to look at a gap in the makeup and ideology of today's anarchists and that of their ancestors. The final essay ponders what cultural and structural prerequisites might be necessary to shrink that gap in order to align our highest ideals with the current quote unquote movement, such as it is. Wither anarchism is a challenge, a provocation, and it is real talk. This is a quote. It is my hope that despite everything, anarchism may someday transcend its present limitations and once again come to represent the highest ideals and aspirations of humanity and that anarchists may make a distinctive contribution to the struggle for freedom and equality and to the new world that the struggle seeks to create. If you share this hope, read on. I think I got this thing from AK Press, if anyone's looking for it. Yeah, it was it was AK Press. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. I know that for myself, you know, uh, as a, a young college student back in the 90s, um, that I really... Uh, considered myself, and I think that a lot of the people that I was working with, uh, we really saw ourselves as, as anarchists. We were doing a lot of work with uh, anti-racist action, kids um, all throughout the Midwest. Uh, it was, you know, it, I think it was a little bit of a different time, going to Klan rallies, that kind of stuff. To fight them, to be clear, right? Right, yeah, we would. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know you. Yeah, yeah, we weren't going to like uh, participate. We weren't going to be supporters of the Klan. We were going to be unsupporters of the Klan. Went through a lot of different uh, phases. I know that at one point, um, we all started really playing around this idea of anarcho-nationalism um, as we were, you know, uh, forming uh, Mecha chapters and Brown Beret chapters uh, all throughout the Midwest 
from about uh, 1996 uh, to really about 2002. I haven't really done a lot of writing about this idea of anarcho-nationalism, but uh, I think it's really compelling. There is a um, a book by uh, Dr. Dylan Miner. It's called Low Riding Across Aslan. He does talk a little bit about this idea of anarcho-nationalism, uh, particularly looking at the work that we were doing at the Chicano Development Center in the late 90s and the early 2000s. But I think the thing that really grabbed me about this in particular was that uh, Williams is really, I, I feel like, giving a, a strong critique of how these ideas have morphed over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. The thing that really struck me the most was the way that these ideas have infiltrated the uh, Chicano movement. What I think is the most fascinating about that is that uh, most people don't realize that. That, that's what struck me as I was reading the pamphlet. Sure. I think, you know, maybe we should get into some of those ideas that he's talking about. I think one of the main thesis of the second chapter is that anarchism in the 1890s was a militant labor struggle in the United States. The Haymarket Affair happened, and by the 1920s or 30s, many leaders of the anarchist movement in the United States had been deported or imprisoned because of a uh, strong commitment to violence, or maybe not a commitment to violence, but not having an issue with violence. So people like Emma Goldman deported, Alexander Berkman, you know, and then around that time, the anarchists needed to retreat or felt the need to retreat and there in uh, many prisons, they met the pacifist anti-war protesters who were mostly religiously based. And there was kind of a mixing of uh, ideology and tactics there. And then coming out in the 1960s, that really defined the 1960s, specifically that anarchism became more of a counter-cultural or outside kind of group. I mean, William, what you're talking about by these things. yeah, I mean, and, and he does a pretty good job laying out the, um, the, the timeline of how this happened, right? Like he's not just making these, these charges. I mean, he, you know, he's talking about uh, particularly at one spot, the relationship between IWW organizers and uh, pacifists as they're imprisoned together for refusal to participate in World War I. You know, he goes on to show how uh, some of these uh, these types of cultural activities, right, that were really associated with the pacifist community. You know, he writes on page uh, 14, he says, then during the Second World War, the remaining movement split over the question of militarism with pacifism becoming the dominant strain. At the same time, increasingly much of anarchist activity was in the cultural sphere and the movement became wedded to the emerging counterculture, readings, performances, and exclusive parties moved to the center of the anarchist praxis, Cornell writes. In the 1940s, Bay Area scene, participating in such revelatory events became the primary activity expected of an anarchist. Indeed, we might interpret this as the time and place where an anarchist scene emerged, exciting and socially rewarding to participants but easily perceived as insular and exclusionary to those less connected. That really struck me when I read it for the first time. 
because you know having been a part of of the anarchist scene in the in the 1990s in the early 2000s you know i saw very much you know how that was true right and really thinking about this whole idea of of how we build up movements it it makes it very hard to break in right it's not necessarily a thing that's set up to uh, mobilize mass amounts of people or to um, bring them into the, the organization that exists. That was part of what really hit it for me anyways. There's a pretty good interview about this piece, really one of the only ones I could find with him or anyone even talking about this pamphlet uh, with the platypus affiliated society, which I think is like a I don't know, libertarian socialist group. Anyway, but he says anarchism became a culture of being right, a culture of conformity to ideas with no room to argue. Characteristics were uh, reactive, illiberal, anti-structural instead of creative or actively creative, creating things like freedom and equality. And I think that's a reoccurring theme to all the essays that he's kind of asking like, you know, Kropotkin, Bakunin, Proudhon, Goodwin, Stirner in some cases, like these people who are the founding fathers of this theory, all they were talking about was freedom and equality. But now we don't even use those words for some reason. But there is for somehow an ideological purity demanded. And that comes in mostly characteristics that we have inherited such as consensus meetings uh this this real purity of politics like you know some spaces you'll go into with anarchists the mention of not being a vegan is you know one of the ultimate sins you know not wearing clothes that were recycled things like that and like todd was saying like that's a real barrier for people i mean most people wear something that has a nike logo on it or some sort of thing i mean you know, many cultures, especially non-white cultures, it's not recently traditional that diets uh, emit meat. Like meat is something that all people eat in the United States or told that they should. Particularly with the ideas of freedom and equality, one of the problems with that is that we've abandoned that to the right. That's who's talking about freedom and equality right now. Sure is the right wing in this country, you know, uh, it's, everything is there, is their freedom, right? I think that that's a, a part of the problem, all of the things that you're, that you were just talking about. I mean, the other thing that I think is really important that he really spends quite a bit of time, you know, dissecting is this uh, thing that he calls the prefigurative fallacy. This is what he writes. It's real short, but I think it's super important. He says, the turn to pacifism also locked the anarchist movement into a particular prefigurative orientation. Prefiguration has always existed in three forms. First, the notion that our revolutionary organizations would later provide the means of coordinating and managing society. Second, counter institutions like anarchist schools, bookstores, co-ops, and utopian communities intended to displace the governmental, clerical, and commercial institutions and three, lifestyle practices like free love and vegetarianism, which modeled egalitarian relationships and new liberated modes of being. These different interpretations of prefiguration 
have received different measures of emphasis at various points in time. So, I mean, as, as I started reading through this, I mean, what really hit me was I, I was just like, well, this is the Chicano movement right now in the, in the 2000s, right? In, in the 2000, uh, the late 2010s, uh, the early 2020s. I mean, we, as a, as a movement, I'm not saying this is true of everybody that's in the Chicano movement, but I think in a broad way that we've really accepted and, and um, brought into our organizing and the way that we think about organizing the, these ideas, right, of uh, prefiguration, um, of this sort of demanding of this purity, this absolute purity of politics, right, and the way that... Um, you know, people are, are cut off as a result of that when they don't live up to that, you know, and then the way that what, and then, you know, how that leads to really a fracturing, right? Instead, instead of a, a growth in organization, instead of a, a growth in the ability to mobilize mass groups of people, what in fact, in fact happens is that these, these uh, groups, because of this demand for this absolute purity, they become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and in many ways, I think, you know, it's a replication of, of uh, consumerism, right? The way that, that each of us has been reduced uh, through tracking and through, you know, uh, data points and all of, all of these different things to just like these specific units, these individualized units, we're all prepackaged uh, cookies, <laughs> so to speak. And, sure. you know, I mean- so We could buy that identity. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. You know, so I think it's, it's important, right? To really think about, I think what this means for radical political activity, right? Because I don't think- I mean, I don't think that it's possible to change society by not by you not wearing a Nike logo, right? I just don't. I don't. I don't think that that's 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 what we're talking about. Actions that we take on an individual basis, while they may be important to us, right, only become actions that can truly challenge the power of the state when there are thousands or millions of us, millions of us who take similar action. So it's the idea of how to build a mass movement, which I think is what he's also, I think is what he's really getting at here. I think that what he's saying is that anarchism isn't building a mass movement. I would argue that most Chicano organizations in the United States right now are not building a mass movement. Yeah. And I think the thing that that hits differently about this critique, because it could usually easily be seen as like, oh, the young people and their, you know, cancel culture purity thing. But I think he's really asking the reader to investigate the why instead of just like these traditions or identities or, you know, these clothes we wear or these things we do like what really is happening when we create a spectacle every time some racist law happens and we break some windows like, or, you know, 
uh, some, some bill happens. We go out and we protest every time we break some things, the news writes, you know, the anarchists are bad. Like, what is that really doing? Um, you know, these things have worked in the past, but if we're going to be successful, how do we investigate what we're doing to not just be reactive? Um, because oftentimes, you know, politics that we see them, not always are very reactive and negative, negating, um, you know, we're anti-racist, we're anti-capitalist, we're anti-this. But I think he's making a call for like, well, what are we for? What is the thing that creates? Because as, you know, Bakunin said, you know, the urge for destruction is actually a creative urge. So if we're going to think about that, like if we're trying to destroy capitalism, what is the thing that we're going to create? Because we've been trying to destroy capitalism and not creating anything new. Like if anything, we've kind of been losing and getting our asses whooped. And I mean, he says it, we haven't even changed the way that we do things since the 1880s. Like, oh yeah, Haymarket Square riot. Let's go do that again. You know, the 1930s, 1960s, let's just redo that. Capitalism has changed. We have computers, you know, um, the makeup of society is different. Race has changed, you know, like Irish people weren't white people in the 1880s. I don't know. Things have changed. And I think there's a, this, this call while oftentimes coming off that he felt a little, you know, crotchety or something to me, the guy's been in the movement a long time, but I think that really what he's getting at and coming from a really loving place is, yo, let's take a second and breathe and say, like, is this really working? And how can we do something where we actually change society? Yeah. I think that you're right about that. I, th I think that is what he's doing. I, and, and it's one of the reasons like for myself personally, as a person, you know, who thinks about these things and, you know, who these things, are, you know, is important to that. I was, I was drawn to what he had written. I don't think that he is um, participating in some like um, polemical broadside, right. Against, uh, well, I, in this case, I think that what he's writing about are white anarchists. I mean, it, it made me think about the Chicano movement because, I mean, that's that's the the direction of of my own personal you know orientation in terms of of my politics. But, but it's also cross pollination, you know. Like, oh, one hundred percent. Anarchist yes. politics, he says, has never really gotten power in the United States. But we saw it in you know nineteen ninety nine. We saw it in two thousand sixteen. Like. Anarchists are visible on television. Like they're we saw it in 1999. Where I know where you're talking about, but Seattle, the Seattle. battle for Seattle. That's right. Um, and he uses that as an example in the book as the environmentalists and the uh, unions coming together with the turtles and teamsters, and said, "What a beautiful opportunity we've been talking about militant organizing and countercultural people coming together." And we saw that for you know three or four days in Seattle. And then it fell apart because there wasn't the ability to bring people in. And like, how can we look at that and say, wow, that was a really beautiful opportunity, but how can we make that longer lasting? Yeah. Because, you know, four days of fighting in the streets with people isn't going to do anything. It needs to be like a protracted movement. It's, you know, it, otherwise it's just, it's just a spectacle. It's, you know, a, a beautiful moment that we felt alive, but if we're really trying to feel alive all the time. It, it needs to be needs to be more thought through 
he has a quote in this book, and I, I remember I've been in class. I've, I've I've taught this this booklet in class to different reactions, mixed reactions. But this one quote I thought was always really fun because it goes like this. It says, if anarchism remains only a loose assortment of social scenes with distinctive and often obscure norms and practices collectively darting from one ideological fashion to the next, always seeking the newest or most radical sounding slogans, rather like a crow chasing a bit of tinsel on a windy day, the movement will deteriorate until it is only historical curiosity. Now, what always struck me about that is this. If the Chicano movement remains only a loose assortment of social scenes with distinctive and often obscure norms and practices, collectively darting from one ideological fashion to the next, always seeking the newest or most radical sounding slogans, rather like a crow chasing a bit of tinsel on a windy day, the movement will deteriorate until it is only and historical curiosity. I think the fact that you can substitute the word Chicano movement for the word anarchism in that quote is is telling. I, th I think it's it is a um, it is a warning, right? To think about the way and to think about how deeply these ideas of of these pacifists from the 1920s, man you know, and how it has become a cultural lifestyle, right? To think about what, you know, what it means to be Chicano has become like this cultural lifestyle, you know, conflated, I think, in, in a very sort of problematic way with the idea of politics, you know, and that the, that the way that we live, which, which is important, but it's not the answer. That's the thing, right? So like we hear this all the time and we've talked about this on this podcast before, this idea that existence is resistance. I mean, that comes from things like this, right? I mean, existence is not resistance. Resistance is resistance. Just being alive doesn't mean that you're resisting something. To think about it, I think in that way and, and to really understand, sure, I mean, we can all be individuals and, and we should be, you know, I, I don't think that not calling for robotization or anything like that, but we have to build bigger organizations, not smaller organizations. That's, that's I think, the key. How, how will we ever challenge settler colonialism if we're all fractured off into these little tiny organizations where there's like three or four or five of us who all agree with each other, but we don't agree with anybody else? There's this righteous indignation that happens, you know, when your politics are purer than everyone else's that feeds you, you know, it allows, you know, I feel like, oh, damn, like I got the most radical take right now. You know, I read the newest communization theory and, you know, whatever. I'm not decolonial, I'm anti-colonial, so I know things are the best right now. But like, that doesn't totally help things. You know, it makes you feel good in the moment. I think of that Slavoj Zizek little like sketch in that movie or the movie he did where he's talking about Starbucks. And it used to be that there was activism for the rainforest, but now we're able to buy our activism. 
And I'm not saying that we like buy the ideologies, but sometimes, you know, I get six books and put them on the shelf and I feel pretty good about it, but that's not really doing anything to make me more free or more equal. I might think that that's happening right now, but the thing is we ain't really free until we've destroyed everything that is keeping us from being free. We can think that in our minds. And I think that there is a real value in finding a personal ethics for myself where, you know, I try to eat more sustainably, but I mean, that's not going to save anything. You know what? I get my like electric car. Oh, that's cool. I feel good. I'm probably going to save a little bit of gas. I'm going to get that fat tax refund, but that doesn't really change that we're going to war in other countries for extractions that we can drive these cars. It doesn't even have to be about imperialism. It could be here in the United States. The way the system works, my benefit means it's at someone else's disadvantage. And that is the issue that I would like to deal with. Like I would like it so everyone is free because other people's freedom is something that allows me to be more free. I really appreciate Williams coming at this in an honest way, challenging the morality of our movement. You know, again, anarchism is something that came originally that was against the church and against the state and against systems of control and things have changed, but there is a certain sort of control and conformity that has arisen in much of the politics that exists today. And I just wanted to read this sentence. I thought really uh, resonated about instead of a morality that we should move forward for a, uh, an ethics and a politics together. And he says, our prefigurative practices should be guided by a strategic need to avoid establishing new tyrannies, not by a moral demand that we fully realize some pristine utopia. And he's asking us to think rationally, maybe not rationally is the right word, but um, to think in this moment honestly about what we're doing. You know, like instead of being connected to the old things and just, you know, recycling the things that haven't been working for us. I, I think that last thing that you just said is really is is really important, right? Like this this recycling of things that that haven't been working for us. I mean, we have got to spend some time thinking about maybe even not just like totally new ways of doing something, but like a new take on it, right? Some, some sort of like updated version of it. Like if I hear somebody say one more time about what Stalin thinks about the national question, I mean, I literally do not give a fuck what Stalin <laughs> thinks about the national question, right? I mean, the national question that is in question now has nothing to do with Joseph Stalin. I mean, it just doesn't. Who cares what that guy thinks? You know, does that mean I think that, you know, you shouldn't read his book? I mean, read his book, right? But at least try to be creative enough that you're not just saying, oh, Stalin says, but you're saying, hey, you know, when they tried to do this before, this is what happened. Okay. Now it's in 2020. Totally different conditions. Yeah. Now in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> with a different language. With right. Different people. A yeah. hundred years later, yeah, <laughs> you know, colonization was totally different, yeah. right? You know, like how do we how do we create this this new thing, right? And so I think that I, I want to kind of wrap things up with this this little piece 
In the early 21st century, some anarchists have doggedly tried to make their ideas or sometimes simply themselves relevant to each successive wave of popular unrest, anti-globalization, anti-war, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, anti-pipeline, anti-fascist, anti-Trump. Others have become increasingly wary and sometimes hostile towards activism movements and the left, even as broad concepts, and have fought to preserve a social and political distance between themselves and the progressive mainstream. Curiously, neither the evangelizing nor the sectarian impulse has served to clarify doctrinal issues. Instead, each faction and subfaction has come to identify anarchism within their own special practice, tactics, and idioms, whether lockdowns, black blocks, consensus meetings, community gardens, or accountability processes, while retaining theories derived from other traditions, Marxist, nationalist. As a result, anarchism has devolved into competing collection of gestures, signaling group membership, complex systems of means divorced from any specific ends. We identify anarchism with particular tactics, then we adopt those tactics to affirm our identity as anarchists. And, you know, again, I mean, the thing that I find so startling, right, is that I know that he's talking about anarchists, but this is what this is what really brought it home for me is that he's not he's describing the Chicano movement to to a T, which is, I think, important for those of us who are involved in organizing in the Chicano community to understand we have taken on these these practices and, and, it, and it's how we have begun to identify ourselves. Also, too, that it's one of the reasons why the Chicano movement is struggling the way that, that it is. I just want to read this one last one, and, and then I'll turn it back over to you. He says, our failure, however, is not mainly intellectual, but organizational in, in nature. The anarchist movement has not arranged itself in such a manner that it can be usefully grapple with the problems it faces whether those be theoretical, strategic, or interpersonal. It is probably even fair to say that the word movement is a misnomer. There remain individual theorists who sometimes develop a cult-like following. There are cadre-style sects who carefully outline a program and a line. But by and large, the character of anarchism is determined by the vacillations of an ill-defined milieu which adopts and discards ideas according to the mood of the moment. Powerful stuff, man. Powerful. He's talking in some ways about the failures of anarchism. <laughs> I think that there, there's one particular way that anarchism has absolutely succeeded, at least in the way that he's critiquing it here, is that it has become the dominant way of organizing in our society right now. That's what I think. Well, he talks about, I mean, he, he kind of digs Graeber to task in this. And I was like a little bit, whatever. I like Graeber's books. David Graeber. But David Graeber yep. recently died, but he maybe came up with the phrase occupy everything during the occupy movement. He quotes Graeber and says that anarchism or anarchy is a form that we follow. And actually, it isn't about the content that allows us to align with liberals and things like that and other um, people that would generally be against in certain ways what we're moving towards. But the form of anarchism as this 
a you know pseudo historical thing where we use the tactics of black block and community gardens i mean just just as like a traditional thing like it, it really sounds churchy to me like we are just redoing this because that's the tradition of everything without trying to move forward at, like a mass project and, like don't get me wrong por que no los todos you know like let's do it all but also like let's think about what we're doing all right, y'all. That's that's it for today. We'll be back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all soon. This is The Reality Dysfunction.